Hey, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let me kind of explain where we're at. Last week, we started a series called Prophets and Kings. And this is just a way for us to walk through the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles. Uh, we want to look at this in kind of two parts. One part is this, where we see the, the kingdom under one king. And then we're going to see in 1 Kings 11, once Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two kingdoms. And we're going to see it as two kingdoms. Uh, the idea of why we want to go through this is I want us to see, and I want, I want everyone to know, just from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is not just random stories that are connected together. Uh, this is still telling, the, 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 telling the story of the nation of Israel, but more importantly, telling the story of Jesus. There's something really unique and beautiful when you get to read something like 1 Samuel or 1 Kings or look at a certain story, and it reminds us of another story. It reminds us of the true story that we're all looking for, that Jesus is the better prophet. He's the better priest. He's the better king. He's the better one the promised one that we're looking for. And so we want to study this in that way. How do we see Jesus in this? Jesus made it really clear. He says, when you study the scriptures, you think that you, you, think that you have uh, eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. These speak of Jesus. So we want to find Jesus in these books of the Bible. We want to see the gospel in these books of the Bible. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and this is a little overwhelming, let me kind of put some context. Uh, you know, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, now 1 Samuel. Here's what that means. Uh, you saw that they were slaves in Egypt. Moses is a part of releasing them. Joshua helps them get into the promised land. They're being ruled by judges. This is kind of where that story jumps in. Samuel is that last judge. He's also a prophet. He's also a priest. And he's going to be the one who's going to anoint uh, Saul, who will be the first king of Israel. And so I want you to kind of see the big picture of Israel, like where you're jumping in right now. So if you missed last week, Last week, it began, it began with a praying mom and a miracle child. And like every great story, it begins with a mom and a baby. Whether that's Jochebed and Moses, whether that's Elizabeth and John the Baptist, whether that's Mary and Jesus, ultimately, there's always this idea of a mom who's praying, who's seeking the Lord, and many a times, she is barren, and God answers the prayer, and then here comes this child who's going to help really kind of set the people free in some capacity, help release the people in some way. And even that story alone is pointing ultimately to Jesus. Now, the reason why I'm sharing that is last week's message was way more appropriate for Mother's Day than this week's message. Last week's message, we saw a praying mom and we saw God answer her prayer. This week, we see an evil father and some evil sons. So happy Mother's Day. Um, Maybe this is a Mother's Day message in its own right, actually. All the moms like, I can actually. Um, but this is, this is a way for us to actually see this, too. We're going to see Eli, who's the priest. We're going to see his, his two sons. And then we're going to see Samuel, who's basically, if you remember last week where we ended, he was dedicated or brought to the temple. He's kind of an apprentice of Eli, very young child. And we're going to see his two sons go down one path, and then Samuel go down a different path. And I think the difference is all, we're only told about Eli and his sons. And with, when it comes to Samuel, we're told about his mom. And I think we just see a different outcome. And so I want us to, we're going to read the story. There's a lot of reading today, so bear with me. And I think the moms might like that, right? Because it's a lot more Bible. This is so good. So more reading, more scripture. Um, and here's what I want you to see ultimately. This book starts off with God undoing some things. Meaning he's undoing this woman's barrenness, and he's given her a child. He's undoing the corruption that's in the temple, and he's bringing a called and commissioned child and I love that this book begins with God's like, I need to undo some things. There's some things in this nation that's not going right. It's not on a good trajectory. And I want to undo some things. And I kind of view this as a way of like, God, just undo some things here. 
Like, what is it that you see that you want to undo? What is it you want to make right? Whether it was for them, the priesthood, this barren woman, God is like, I want to undo some things. So last week we saw from sorrow to song. Uh, the title today is simply from corruption to commissioned. From corruption in the temple, in the priesthood, to this child who's the new priest who's commissioned. And we see how God is just undoing some things that need to be undone. So why don't we do this? Why don't we pray? Since there's a lot of reading, we're going to pray and we'll jump right into our story. Cool? Let's do that. Father, we just want to say thank you again. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for all the moms. Just thank you for all the the women in our church who love so well, who lead so well, who serve so well, who are a beautiful reflection of you, Jesus. We thank you, God, that um, we have so many people who just, just are a wonderful example of you. God, I just ask that in this story with Eli, with his sons, with Hannah, with her son, God, with the differences we see in their lives, that Jesus, you would reveal to us, that you'd speak to us, that you would undo some things, make some things right. God, that you would just even remind us how this points to a a greater prophet than Samuel. God, how we see you ultimately in this story. We just want to say thank you. And so I ask that you just um, help, help this make sense in the sense of where this fits in the Bible, but help it just register in our hearts today. Let it not just be a Bible study that happened back then, but Jesus, we ask that you would do and accomplish your will in our lives. God, that you'd raise up men and women who hunger for your word. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, if there's ever been a thought, there's been a book. If you've ever gone to the library, I'm sure you have, maybe not anymore, I have no idea, or if you ever just kind of go on Kindle or audiobooks and start scrolling, uh, there's millions and billions of books and the most ridiculous books. And there's information on everything, on every topic. I got a library card a couple years ago, and I was just scrolling through all the books, and there's the most outrageous books out there. And it's crazy. Someone has a thought, they can write it and publish it. Self-publish, maybe find someone to publish it. I mean, there's a book on literally everything. And words are just out there, floating out there. And it's bizarre to me. I mean, this is kind of somewhat recent, maybe a few hundred years, if you think about it, since the printing press of like, wow, like we have books on every topic ever all over the world. Some books that are absolutely outrageous, but they literally came to print. I'll just throw a few examples of this. Here's one book I saw, uh, How to Talk to Your Cat About Gun Safety. This is a book, a real book. Uh, this might be my favorite one, number two. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? This is Sally. It says a devotional. I'm so sorry. If you are a Christian and ever got this book, I'm so sorry. This is not okay. This is so pathetic and so sad that that is a, a book, a devotional. Oh God, why can't I get my locker open? That was the problems, I guess, back then. I have no idea. Three, men who knit and the dogs who love them. I don't know how you write a book on that, but it's a book. And probably, here's my favorite one, um, Extreme Ironing. I think this is great. Did I see the picture? Love this. This is a book. Now, that, the whole idea is this. There's so many useless books out there. So many books are just nonsense. There's no point. I can't believe someone wrote them. I can't believe someone read them. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, here's the thing. We have a book that we're told will never fade away, that the word of the Lord endures forever. We have a book that is the most printed, most bought, most published book on planet earth, and yet misread or underread in so many ways. And I think that you and I have a book that has changed countless lives. We have a book that has changed murderers or slave traders or traffickers into men who've just been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, absolutely transformed. 
we have a book that does not just endure forever, but it transforms, it changes, it heals, it restores, it brings broken marriages back together. You and I have a book because it's centered on a person, and that person is Jesus. And we have a book that absolutely radically changes lives. Now, here's the thing. Even though there's so many books out there, there's so much information out there. There's a lot out there. We read here in 1 Samuel, but that this was at a time where God's word was very rare. It's very rare, we're told in chapter 3. This was not a time where God was constantly speaking prophetically. The word was actually incredibly rare. It says this in Amos chapter 8. Listen to this, Amos 8. God says, behold, the days are coming that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. God's like, there's a famine coming, but not the kind of famine you're used to or that you're expecting. It's from my word. This was actually spoken to Jeroboam II, uh, to the northern king of Israel. But there's a time in their history in the future where the word was rare. And I think this is also, according to 1 Samuel 3, this is a time where the word was rare. Notice it's not that it's rare for God to speak. He says there's going to be a famine of hearing, of hearing. Not of God speaking, but a famine of, of people hearing. Though I think we have, all of us have a book. We have this book. Maybe it's in front of you. Maybe it's on your phone. You have maybe 10 in your house. I think in many ways you could say there is a famine of hearing the word, of really listening, of really taking it in. You see, and here's what we see. We see two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who do not hear from God at all. We have another son named Samuel who is about to hear from God. Two sons will not listen. Even though they're here to teach the word, preach the word, live out the word, they're priests. They have nothing to do with it. Then you have a little boy named Samuel who's about to hear from God himself. And the word of God is about to break in. And here's the thing. I want us to see this because this is so important to our lives. It's crazy how recent you could say this is, is after Moses and Joshua and the judges. Like they have these stories. They're passed down. They know how God is moving and working. And Moses even warns them. He goes, there's going to come a period of time you're not going to listen to these words. Listen to this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, listen, for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. He goes, it's not a futile thing for you to listen. This is your life. The word of God is life, it brings life, it gives life. And he says, you need to cling to it. It's not futile because this is everything. Everything is based off of the word of God. So here's what we see in 1 Samuel 2. We're actually gonna read today, bear with me, verse 12 through chapter four, verse one. I know, you can do it. Here's the idea, there's two acts today. Act one is this. You see this uh, compare and contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel and between Eli and Samuel. And then act two is chapter three, where you see the call and commission of Samuel. So act one, the compare and contrast. Here in chapter two, verse 12, you're going to see the author's being really clear. He's trying to say, look at Eli's kids. Now look at Hannah's kid. Look at Eli the priest. Now look at Samuel, this mini priest. And then chapter three, you're going to see the calling and commissioning of Samuel. Cool? So let's go to act one. Act one. Can we do that? Act one. Verse 12. Let's read verse 12. Here's act one. Verse 12. Samuel, oh sorry, that's verse 18. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. (laughs) That's how it begins. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests uh, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. 
while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the fork brought up the priest would take him for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This begins in a very heavy way. Remember how it ends? Chapter 2, verse 11. It's like Hannah's song. Like, God, thank you. You've answered my prayer. You, you elevate the humbled. You bring down the, the proud. Thank you, God. You heard me. Verse 12 is, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Actually, what's really interesting, the way it's written in Hebrew, it says, sons of Eli, sons of Belial. That's how it's written. So here's Belial. Belial was most likely either a pagan term or even Paul quotes Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15. He doesn't quote him, but he, he references him. And the idea of Belial was he probably was either some sort of demon, maybe a specific demon, maybe some sort of fallen angel. Uh, Hasidic teachings actually tell us that Belial was someone who went with Satan. That's kind of how they put it. But Belial became to be a term that meant worthless, like absolutely corrupt. And it says this, sons of Eli, sons of corruption. Sons of Eli, sons of worthlessness. Now, these men, these two sons, they were priests. They were priests of, you know, their dad was uh, Eli, who was the high priest. And this is, they're completely worthless, completely corrupted. Now, the idea behind what they did, if you're like, I don't really get what they did. Now, it's very clear in Leviticus 7 and other passages what the priest could eat. This is the burnt offering they're referencing. The burnt offering was something where you'd bring to the priest, they'd offer it up on the altar, they would burn it. The priests would get the breast and the right thigh. That's what we're told they're allowed to have. It's awesome. Uh, over time, it became where it is offered. The, the meat was boiled. They'd take this like little hook thing, stick it in the cauldron, and whatever they got out, that's what they would eat. Now, the idea was the fat was supposed to be God's. That was supposed to be to the Lord, the burnt offering. You offered the fat to God. That's completely his. But over time, they went and said, no, we're not going to really do that. We just give us the fat now. We want it now. It's not going to go to God. We're actually, we want the meat raw. We don't want to throw it in a, cup, a pot anymore. We want it for ourselves. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but obviously this is the sacrifices. This is what atoned for the people's sins. This is how people sought forgiveness. We're told in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And they're messing with the sacrifices. This was a really big deal. They're stealing from God, his meat. They're stealing the fat. So in a sense, they're stealing from God. They're just have, they're shaming the sacrifice. This is, they have contempt for the sacrifice. And they were evil. They were just evil Guys, again, it's, it's important for us to know this because this, for me, kind of flashes back another story. If you remember Aaron, the high, first high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, he had two sons. Those sons' names were Nadab and Abihu. Everyone say Nadab and Abihu. Say Nadab, Abihu. Yeah. Um, Nadab and Abihu also did something kind of similar. In Leviticus 9, we're told that God basically consumed that first offer sacrifice to him, that Nadab and Abihu see fire come down from heaven. They grab their censers, it says, it says profane fire in it, and they want to participate in like the sacrifice. God is doing something. God is getting the credit. God is getting the glory, and they want to participate in the sacrifices in a profane way. It says in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2, it says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, Nadab and Abihu, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to his brother Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Here were two sons of the high priest, Nadab and Abihu, 
who are consumed by fire when they sinned. We're going to see these sons, not judgment. Judgment doesn't come immediately, but judgment will come. Here's just a thing I want to point out that we see. We see that in both Nadab and Abihu and Hophni and Phinehas, we see this idea that they did not have the fear of God in them. There was no fear. They didn't fear the Lord. This is very important because the absence of the fear of the Lord is the presence of sin in our lives. Let me say that again. The absence of fear is the presence of sin. That's why Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. When you don't have the fear of God in you, you will have the presence of sin in you. We see this in Nadab and Abihu. We see this in Hophni and Phinehas. They're very cavalier about the sacrifices of God. Ultimately, what we'd see, like the author of Hebrews picks up on this, and he says we do this too in a similar way. Like we trample the sacrifice that God has given us, his son Jesus. We don't appreciate it. We, don't, we, don't, we, we take it for granted. We walk all over it. We might look at them and say how shameful of them. The author of Hebrews says, well, we do this in, in a different way. They shame the sacrifice of God, and, and we might do that same, but with Jesus. So we see this. Is, they're setting the tone now right away. That's how it begins. It's going to switch straight to Samuel. So we have, we have Hophni and Phinehas, 12 through 17, and then now we're going to see Samuel. Verse 18, it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So when they would return to their home, so then they returned to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So you see this, con- this compare and contrast immediately. You have Hophni and Phinehas, very evil, and it says, but Samuel, he's ministering before the Lord. And the, the author's really trying to show the difference between Eli's kids and Elkanah and Hannah's kid. And saying, do you see the difference of them? Do you see the desire to serve the Lord? It is, is a different kind of take on them in this way. Now, here's what I want to point out. I love how the mom was making him like a little garment. Each year she'd go up and bring like a linen ephod. An ephod was something that high priest would wear. And so he had like this little miniature high priest kind of robe thing. The whole idea of Samuel was he's basically apprenticing under Eli. Now, Eli is corrupt. Eli is, is very corrupt. We'll read about that in a second, in a second. But you're going to see like Eli's corrupt. You have this little boy, Samuel, who's apprenticing under him. I love that Hannah's just like, Lord, I'm trusting that you're, this boy's going to turn out all right. Even though his kids didn't, God, I'm like surrendering to you. And I'm trusting you in this process. Now you have this little boy wearing this little linen ephod, like a miniature high priest garments. And I love this idea because the, the scriptures kind of communicate new garments as being like a changed or a changed life. This idea of being clothed in new clothes, it meant there's like a new, a new turning point has happened. The Bible speaks of how we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. We're given the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The Bible kind of communicates that when you see a change of clothing happening, that means like a change of life is happening. When you see us being robed in Christ's righteousness, it means our life is made completely new. And so you have this idea of Samuel, there's some change happening. There's comparing and contrasting Eli's kids with Samuel's kid. Now, why this is so important, look at verse 21 one more time so you can kind of see it for yourself. But verse 21, it says, indeed the Lord, or not verse 21, uh, verse yeah, 21. It says the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, verse 26 actually says the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with God, the Lord and also with man. I have to point this out. It says that Samuel's growing in the Lord. Verse 26 says, if you scoot down a few verses, that he's growing in favor with God and man. Now, what does that remind you of? What does that point to? If you remember Luke chapter 2, 
verse 52, what it says about Jesus, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. This same phrase, Luke, he pulls out of 1 Samuel uh, 2 here and says, just like Samuel grew physically, but he also grew in favor with God and man, so too Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Now, uh, Josephus, a Roman historian who is Jewish, writes about Samuel and says Samuel, he believes, was 12 years old at this point in time. He comments on Samuel's age. We're told in Luke 2 that Jesus was 12 years old. Here's the idea. The Bible's obviously making a big connection bridge there, saying, look, it, just like Eli's son, uh, Samuel grew, he grew in favor with God and man, so too we see Jesus grow and grow in favor with God and man. Why is this important? Samuel is very unique. Samuel is a judge. He's a prophet. He's a priest. And in 1 Samuel 8, the people wanted to make him king. He won't become king. But he's a prophet, priest, judge. And this is ultimately pointing to another one, Jesus, who is the judge, who is the last and true prophet, and who is the priest. But Jesus is also the king. Samuel didn't have the, the office of the king, but Jesus did. We call this the trifold office of prophet, priest, king. I think this is so profound. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. No priest was allowed to be king and no king was allowed to be priest, except we see that in the person of Jesus. Jesus could hold all these offices. The point I really do believe that we have to see in scriptures is, yes, even though Samuel is so great, he's a great prophet, he's a great priest, he'll turn out to be one. But however, there is a better prophet coming. There is a better priest coming. There is a better king coming. That this really, even though as great as Samuel is, this is pointing to someone else to come, and his name is Jesus. And I'm very thankful for this, because the priesthood failed. It failed within Eli. We'll see this. It fails ultimately Samuel and his sons who become judges. They failed epically. Samuel's kids will fail. What we see in the book of Hebrews is this idea that the priesthood failed, but it's only because it's fulfilled in Jesus. Let me read this to you. It's Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 23. It says, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This priesthood was constantly turning over people. There's life, there's death, there's life, there's death. But here's Jesus, the once and last priest, who constantly lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the better priest and the better prophet that Samuel speaks of. Here's the thing. I don't want to pass over this lightly. I don't want to just gloss over this. Because Samuel's like, do you not see that he's pointing this out? He goes that he grew in stature and favor with God and with man. And this is clearly said of Jesus. Jesus, the greater prophet to come, the greater priest to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this. He says, Jesus is the center and the strength of the Bible, of the church, and of theology, but also of humanity, of reason, of justice, and of culture. Everything must return to him, to Jesus. It is only under his protection that it can live. That whatever it is you and I read scripture, we must see how this is speaking of and pointing to Jesus. So you have Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons that are wicked or evil. Then you have Samuel, this one who's representing or speaking of Jesus in a greater way. So we'll keep going in verse 22. Here's what it says in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings for all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it is of the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I want to point this out. Obviously, his kids are corrupt. We're told that they're worthless men. We're told that they're stealing from God. They're physically threatening and harming people. And we're told that there's sexual sin with the people. Now, this is like his boys. This is the high priest's kids. And the father does kind of confront them. He's like, I don't hear a good report. And yeah, obviously, it's not a good report. It's a pretty bad report, actually. Now, if, this is just interesting to me. Hophni and Phineas. Phineas, I believe, there's another Phineas in the scriptures. This Phineas is in Numbers 25. And this Phineas was completely different than the Phineas we see here. Why do I bring this up? In Numbers 25, there's a story of basically the nation of Israel, the men of the nation, sleeping with these Moabite women. And Moses is like, this is not a good. You're worshiping their gods. You're sleeping with their women. There's a story of a guy named Phineas. And you can read this. This might throw you off a bit. But basically, God's like, this is not okay. You're sleeping with these women. You're, you're worshiping their pagan gods. Phineas gets up. And maybe you know this story. He grabs a spear. And as two people are sleeping together, he, he throws a spear through him, and he, he shish kebabs them, basically. Throws a spear through them. If you know this, and that basically looks and says, wow, this guy cared for the holiness of God. Like, why are you bringing this up? Here's a Phineas who fought against sexual sin. Here's a Phineas who's given into it. This Phineas was named after this Phineas, most likely. Like, all you know, you, you do that, right? You name your kids after a great Bible character in some ways. Um, this Phineas was named after that one, but he failed epically. And here's what we see. We begin to see that idea of this, this nation. It's repeating its sins, but in a different way. I love that Eli is confronting them. Eli is calling them out. He goes, I hear a bad report, but let me just really make this clear. Um, Sometimes confronting is not enough. Sometimes discipline is the only option. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where maybe you confront someone on their sin, but maybe it's not enough at different points in times. Eli was in a position where he confronted, but he's also in a position where he could have disciplined them. He could have taken them out of the priesthood. He could have stopped it then and there. He heard, he approached, but it wasn't enough. There does come a point in time in our, in our life where we go, I, I want to speak out, I want to confront, I want to call out your sin, but maybe it's not enough. There are different points in times we say, I love you, I have to actually do something now. And this can come in so many different forms. There could be people in unhealthy relationships, and you, you call out the other person, you say, hey, i got to confront you. Maybe you see this play out in really bad, terrible ways. Maybe you say, hey, for your own safety, you need to get out. You confront it, but maybe that's not enough. Maybe this is it when it comes in the church, obviously, world or realm, where you say, I can confront you, but if you're continuing in this. Confronting is not enough. We love you. We have to exercise discipline over you. This is where Eli failed. He confronted, but he didn't bring discipline. And we're going to see that ultimately because of this, God sends a prophet, another prophet, to Eli to call him out. So the story continues in verse 27. Verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded uh, for my dwelling? And honor your sons above my uh, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of Uh, of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be be an old man in your house forever. 
the only one of, of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. All right, stay with me. Eli's sins are brought out. It says this man of God came to him and basically speaks prophetically over him. Now, here's the question. Who is this man of God? We don't know. That phrase man of God is used 70 times in the Old Testament. It's just used 70 times of like some sort of prophet that God has sent. And I'm so curious by that. I'm like, who is this person that is speaking specifically into Eli and his sin? But just as a man of God. Here's what I love about that. There's no name really given. There's not really even a title, just the, that phrase, a man of God. It's not like he has some sort of position of authority. We're not told he's a prophet. We're not told that he's a priest. We're not told that he's a, anything like that. He's just a man of God. This is so good to know because if you're waiting for some sort of title and ministry to be given to you, you might be waiting forever. There might be no title ever given other than man of God, other than woman of God. What I love about this is he doesn't have some sort of position. We don't know who this is. Here's this guy who speaks prophetically into Eli. This is so important. I want you to know that God obviously wants to use you. Maybe you're not in vocational ministry but maybe you're just a, simply a man of God or a woman of God, and that is enough. That's more than enough. God is looking for men and women who he can use. It just says, a man of God, that's it. You know, there's this verse we have over my, my son's uh, bedroom. It's this, like, little uh, an oak tree thing, and, like, someone, like, carved into it or something. I don't know. It's, like, this little flat wooden thing, and it's 1 Timothy 6.11. It just says, but you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. It's a verse my son needs and I need <laughs> greatly. It says, but you, O man of God, pursue, pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. And we'll read that verse almost every night. We're like, Micah, you, O man of God, pursue these things. Man of God, and my son's initials are MOG. I'm like, this is you, buddy. MOG, man of God, this is for you. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Here's the thing. God is just looking for men and women who are like that. That phrase, man of God, hey, you a man of God, hey, you a woman of God, pursue these things. Here was just this man of God. It is interesting because obviously you see this corruption happening. What's interesting about this prophecy over Eli is he starts with the nation of Israel's history. He's like, we need to take you back to your past. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget how you got here. Notice he has to kind of jump back to Moses and Aaron and the priesthood because Aaron was a Levite, but only the, the, the sons of Aaron could be the high priests. Yes, Levites could be priests, but only the sons of Aaron could be the high priests. And he goes, don't forget your lineage. Don't forget your history. Don't forget where you came from. What a good word. Don't forget how you got here today. Remember how you got here. There has to be an appreciation for the past, even, even though his past was screwed up. Even though his past, the nation of Israel, their past was really messed up. There has to be an appreciation for how you got here. Think about where you are at right now. Think about maybe you're here because someone brought you or a family member or someone raised you in the faith or whatever it was. The idea, though, is like appreciate that. Don't belittle that. Don't look down on that. Eli could have looked down on that in some ways. He goes, don't forget your history. This is so important. I think we have to appreciate how, why I'm here, how I'm here. By the grace of God, I'm thankful for those before me who went ahead of me, all of that. Don't forget how you got here. There has to be an appreciation for that.
And if you notice this, again, there's corruption, and this corruption is being called out. It's hard. You know, I worked at a church um, from 18 to 19, um, right before I got married to when I got married. It was um, this church nearby, and I was a janitor there for about a year, solid 12 months. And I worked 40 hours a week, and I think I've shared this story, but, like, it's, it's just a weird job. I went from, like, working at a gym and, you know, being with people and having clients, and it's fun, to working, like, in this church. And it was hard, man. I'd clock in at 8 a.m. and clock out at 5 p.m., and I would sometimes see no one the whole day. Just cleaning, vacuuming, whatever, doing that whole thing. But here's what I would see. I was once in a while, just me and a few other people on staff, the few other people were the pastor's kids. And I remember they'd clock in, play drums, clock in, be on their phone, clock in, lift weights. And man, was it hard not to get bitter in my heart. <laughs> it was very easy. Actually, I'd say I did get bitter. And it's very one of those things. I was watching like the sons of the priests and just watching them come in, just be, clock in, clock out, literally come in, clock out, go to lunch, come in. I'm like, what is going on? It just made no sense. It's painful to watch. And I was kind of in my heart going, Lord, like, does anyone see this? Does anyone care? And if I try to mention it, it's like I had to be like very careful. Like, hey, I don't know if you know your sons are kind of clocking in. I have no idea where they're going. Oh, they have responsibilities you don't know about. Okay. You know, and it's very hard to watch the, the house of God in a sense be used that way. And I'll say this. There's self-righteousness that came up in my heart the Lord had to call out. Like, do you really think you're better? There's so many things. That, it wasn't just their sin. Like, God was really revealing my sin in the process. But all these thoughts kind of flooding my head of, God, how long? And here's the thing. Here's what we see. God saw. God saw with them. God saw here with Eli and his sons. And God was willing to send someone to say, hey, let me speak into this. And he reminds Eli of his history, but he reminds him now, he tells him, really, of his future. And he says, you're going to be cut off. Your kids are going to be cut off. And there's a prophecy in verse 35. Let me just read it again as we see it. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a, a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. He's like, I want you to know, you haven't been faithful, but I'll raise up a faithful priest. He literally says in verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. We're going to see that later. And this does happen. They die on the same day. Then we're going to see Eli. He dies in the weirdest way ever. It's weird Bible stories of how someone died. Really bizarre. But here's the thing. This is fulfilled. Hophni and Phinehas die the same day. God has raised up a new priest. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember how I said this. Eli is the son of Aaron. There are very few people who can be high priest. I'll put it up here just so, I can, so you can see it clearly. Eli descended from Aaron through one of his sons named Ithamar. Solomon, so just a couple of kings after Saul, David, David's son Solomon. So in a few years, basically, Solomon will appoint Zadok to serve as the high priest. And he was of the house of Eleazar. So there is a son of Aaron named Eleazar. Zadok is going to come and be that priest. Here's why I'm bringing this up. He's saying, I'm going to remove your family from the priesthood. Actually, what's so sad in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, Eli and his sons were not mentioned in the priesthood. They're actually cut out from the genealogy of it. Now, we're going to see Zadok be brought in, maybe just, you know, within a few years, basically. We're going to see a new priest come in, but this will happen. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. I don't think this is just about Zadok, who's going to come and be the new high priest. Because ultimately, we see in the book of Hebrews that the priesthood failed, but again, there is a better priest who always lives, as we read, who always lives to make intercession for us, and his name is Jesus. I think this faithful priest to come, the whole point of this is to say, look it, the priesthood fails. The prophets, they will fail. The kings will fail. But there is a better priest coming, verse 35 says, a faithful priest. And again, according to Hebrews 7, even verse 28, that that is Jesus, the faithful high priest. I love how it says this, Hebrews 7, 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. Yes, we see that here. But, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. 
This priesthood had weaknesses, but the son who comes after Jesus, this priest, will be perfected forever. So again, here's what we see. We see Eli, we see his sons, we see the corruption, we see this man of God call them out. It's very clear what's going to happen. Your sons are going to die. You're going to be replaced with a new priest. It's going to be Zadok, ultimately Jesus, and that's Act 1. The Act act 1 that we just looked at is the the compare and contrast between Eli and his sons and Samuel. Now here's where we get into Act 2. Act 2 is chapter 3. In Act 2, we're going to see this call of Samuel and the commission. This call and commission of Samuel. So let's read. It's 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was rare. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God, the lamp in the temple of God, has not yet gone out. It's supposed to be lit all night. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel... And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, "Uh, I did not call you. Lie down again. (laughs) So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, "Uh, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. I absolutely love this story. Maybe you heard this story. Maybe you know this story. Maybe you don't know this story. I love this story. I have to like break it down though first. Verse one is this. Notice it says Samuel is ministering to the Lord. He is ministering in the presence of the Lord. He's ministering to the Lord. This is so key. There are times in our life where we minister for the Lord, and then there are times in our life where we minister to the Lord. Ministering for the Lord is what our kids' ministry workers are doing right now right? They're serving our kids, praying over them, loving them, making crafts, teaching them about Jesus. It's all those who came early and set up, and they're going to tear down. We, a lot of us minister for the Lord, but notice that Samuel's ministering to the Lord, and this is when the Lord speaks to him. The to the Lord is different. The ministering for the Lord might be more in public. The ministering to the Lord might be more in private. The ministering for the Lord is something that can happen from the pulpit, but ministering to the Lord can happen in your, in your prayer closet. And it's as he's ministering to the Lord, that's when the voice of the Lord comes. I find this to be the case. When you're just truly more alone and can find some time to get away, and you're just enjoying your God, worshiping your God, praying, seeking your God, when you're ministering to him, that's most often when God speaks. I'd say this, minister to the Lord. It actually, this phrase is used again in the book of Acts about the early church. When the church was praying for God to raise up leaders and send out people, it says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. As they ministered to the Lord and as they were fasting, that's when the Spirit spoke. This chapter is about how the word of God was rare, but Samuel heard the word of God. And I'd say, how did he hear? First, we've got to put ourselves in a place where we're ministering to the Lord. If you want to hear from God, spend time with God. If you want to hear from God, just enjoy Him. The disciples are fasting in the book of Acts. He's ministering to Him. I love that He's like in the, it says where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's just fascinating. It's not that He's in the Holy of Holies, but He's in the holy place. He's in the room just, just enjoy, sleeping in the presence of God. Just like trying to take in God's presence. 
I think that is absolutely fascinating. This is when the voice of the Lord comes in, when he's just like in the presence of God, trying to enjoy God, seeking out God. This is so important for us to hear. This is so important for us to know how, how and when God speaks to us the most clearly. Uh, I want to say this phrase was really interesting that caught my attention. Uh, it says in verse 3, it says, The lamp of God has not yet gone out. Now, obviously, this is saying, like, it's at night. He's sleeping. The, 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 the candlestick that was in the holy place was constantly lit throughout the night. And it's saying that this was constantly lit. It had not yet gone out. But I also just believe it's really like a euphemism for saying that God's favor is still there. There's still hope for the nation of Israel. That the lamp of Israel has not gone out yet. God still wants to move and speak. Even though the word of the Lord was rare, it's saying the lamp did not go out. Even though God was not yet speaking really commonly in prophetic ways, God is still available. He's still there. And that's what we see it. One author says, now we have an image of a lamp almost going out. The light is cast dim, but it is not yet extinguished. There is still hope. And here's what we see. We see in this chapter this idea of like there are barriers from hearing from God. There are certain barriers that keep us from hearing from God. If you're in this moment, you're in this room, and you're going, I don't hear from God. I would like to hear from God. How does God speak? I want to get to that. But I want to bring up the question, like, what is keeping you from hearing from God? There are a few things, and I think whether it's Samuel or Eli, or Hophni and Phinehas, they all had different reasons they weren't hearing from God. First is this, I think there's inexperience. Notice that with this little boy, Samuel. I, I love this. He, he hears God say, Samuel, and he immediately runs to Eli. He's like, yeah, you called me. He's like, nope, go lie down. Does it again. Again, three times, he calls him, goes to Eli. And he's like, go lay down. Now, if you're a parent, you would love this. I would love this. If I said my son's name one time, that would be absolutely amazing. Like, Micah, come here. Like, yes, dad. I'd be like, oh my gosh, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Yes, like anything, right? I love that. Just that he has this willing spirit, but he's also inexperienced. I think willingness is very important, but we got to acknowledge sometimes if you're young in the faith, it's okay. Take time. It might take some time. Even though Eli is off and sinful, he does, basically, he does give him good advice, but there's something about just saying, slow down a bit. Say, speak, God, I'm listening. I want to hear. And there's something about that. You know, we can have selective hearing, I do believe. I'm accused of that sometimes by my wife. She's like, you hear what you want to hear. I'm like, no, I don't. What'd you say? It's bad, right? It is funny. It is funny because I will diss my son. I'm like, Micah, come here. It doesn't come. I'm like, Micah, we have ice cream. He's like, you have ice cream? I'm like, I knew you were listening. I knew it, right? We only hear what we want to hear, and that's what we see. Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear. Sometimes I think we need to slow down and say, God, I hear, I want to hear the things I don't want to hear. I love that Samuel is willing. He runs. He, like, he goes, did you speak? Did you speak? So I think there's inexperience. I think sometimes there's a barrier from hearing from God, like expectation. Maybe you don't expect God to speak to you. I think even like right now, you could be at church and not expecting God to speak to you, which is kind of bizarre. There has to be this expectation that God can and will speak. Listen, when you read the Bible in the morning, don't just view it as a time to read. Expect to hear from God. There's a difference. Don't just read information, but go, God, and speak. I'm listening. I think we don't hear because we're not always expecting God to speak. I think also there's sin. I think Hophni and Phinehas, I think Eli, I don't think they were hearing from God clearly because of just simply sin. Sometimes we just don't hear from God because there's unconfessed sin in our life. In Psalm 66, we're told that the Lord does not hear our prayer because there's essentially unconfessed sin. When we confess sin, that's so often we feel that connection again with God. I'd say confess sin. I also think there's unwillingness. Whether it's Hophni or Phinehas or Eli, there's like an unwillingness to hear from God. And so Eli even goes, you know what? I'm not going to hear from God, but hey, uh, Samuel, good luck. You, you just say, speak, if your servant's listening. He's like, I I'm not really willing, but you be willing. I think we need to have this willingness to hear from God. Here's what's interesting to me. In Psalm 40, the author uh, uh, picks up on this, and it's repeated in the book of Hebrews, but in Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. I've never really focused on that last phrase. 
it, the whole point of the Old Testament is saying, hey, sacrifice and offering is really not it. God wants obedience. Like, yes, sacrifice and offering is beautiful. It's everything. It points to Jesus. But God's like, you can kill animals all day long and still not be obedient to me. What I want from you is open ears. And the author says, sacrifice and offering, it's not, that's not what you delight in, but just having an open ear to you, God. What does God delight in? Just having an open ear. God, speak. The way this is like worded in Hebrew is basically like, dig out the stuff from my ear. It's like, dig it out. Whatever's clogging my hearing, dig it out. You giving me an open ear, you dug out that junk. I want an open ear to hear from you, God. I want to hear from you in this moment. And that's what, that's what delights God. God delights in someone who says, speak for your servant listens. This is what God is looking for. This is what God delights in. Not necessarily sacrifice and offering, because you can do all the right things, but still be disobedient in your heart. He's saying, I want you to have an open ear. Like, speak. I am listening. I'm waiting. Eugene Peterson, in his book on the Bible, uh, said this, the primary organ for receiving God's revelation is not the eye that sees, but the ear that hears, which means that all of our reading of scripture must develop into a hearing of the word of God. Again, there is a difference between reading the Bible and hearing God. It is so important. I would say just be still for a few seconds before you pick up your Bible. Just take a deep breath. Be calm. Be still. And just say, God, speak. I am listening. And truly do your best to do that. As you're reading, God, what, are you, what is your voice saying to me right now? What is your spirit saying to me right now? And I think this is what basically Eli says to Samuel, do this. Say, okay, Lord, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Let's keep reading how it plays out. Verse 10, here's how it plays out. And the Lord came, notice that, the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity uh, that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever." Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, of course. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. <laughs> that time it's him. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for, listen, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. All right, stay with me. Here's, here's like the story. Here's how it plays out. He goes, say, God, speak for your servant listens. Now notice this. Three times God said Samuel once. The fourth time God says Samuel, Samuel. And now maybe that's not super significant, but this reminds me of Saul. When God goes, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goats? Why do you persecute me? Here's what we see. This idea of like being said twice is emphasizing, listen, pay attention, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes, speak. And notice he doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say speak, Lord. I think he's, there's like maybe fear. He's a child. There's humility. It's like, speak, your servant listens. He responds, I'm listening. What is it you want to say? 
And then God repeats basically the prophecy that he just gave to Eli earlier and said it's going to be accomplished. Samuel ends up telling Eli he hid nothing from him. You see Eli go, so be it. It's going to happen regardless. And then you see that Samuel from this point on is identified as a prophet. The word goes to Samuel. Samuel's word goes to the nation of Israel. So just stay with me for a second. Here's what we see. God speaks, and I want to make this really clear. God still speaks. This is so important for us to get this. God still speaks. The word of the Lord is not rare today. We have the full counsel of God's word. God still speaks. Notice it says he revealed himself, in verse 21, through the word of the Lord. The main way God reveals himself is through his word. God still reveals himself, and it's through his word. God still speaks. Are we listening? God still speaks. Do we have ears to hear? I'm very thankful that we have this book, but again, it doesn't matter if we don't have ears. We must have ears to hear. God is still speaking, and God is still moving, but are we listening? When he says, Samuel, Samuel, you know what I see? I'm just reminded of how Jesus knows us by name and calls us out by name. I love how Jesus can just speak my name, speak your name. Jesus says, Mary. Jesus says, Lazarus. Jesus says our name and we come, we respond. In John chapter 10, verse 3, it says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes, Samuel, Samuel, and he responds this time. Jesus, God, he knows our name. He calls us out. He leads us out. He knows your name. Do you know that he knows your name? Like, I want you to hear it this way. When you read God's word, I would love for you to, in a sense, to hear your name, that God is speaking your name, that he calls you out, John 10, by name, by name. He says your name. And I I think there's something important saying, this is not just um, a general revelation for mankind, even though it is. It's also a revelation for me. It also speaks to me. He's speaking to Samuel personally. I believe he'll speak to you personally. I do. You need to know that he calls you out by name. Have you ever sensed the Holy Spirit during worship, maybe in your car, maybe in a sermon, maybe alone in your prayer room, and you just feel like God's like saying your name? He's just like, hey, I love you. Fill in your name. Hey, Josiah, I'm with you. You're not alone. There's something so beautiful when it's personalized like this. And he says, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, speak, your servant listens. Listen, there has to be that. That's the only right response to God speaking. God still speaks. I love what Martin Luther said about this. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. It's alive. It speaks. It moves. It has hands. It lays hold of you. Listen, God is not trying to be like this where's Waldo, like I got to find God. Like God wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. Do we know that God wants to be heard? Like God wants to speak. He wants us to listen. We're told in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God wants to be heard. God wants to be seen. There's something about this. Speak, Lord, your, your servant is listening. God still speaks to this day. We need to know he speaks. How does God speak? Put up a few ways we'll do this. Pretty simple. God speaks to us through his spirit, the spirit of God. In John 16 and in John 14, he says very clear that the Holy Spirit testifies of me. He speaks of me, that he'll bring these things that I've spoken to your remembrance. We're told that he'll show you of things to come. In John 16, speaking to the disciples or the apostles, he'll reveal things to come. Let me say this, the Holy Spirit of God still speaks. And again, this can come in different ways at different times. And there has to be this expectation. There has to be this mindset of like, okay, Lord, speak. I'm listening. He does speak through his spirit. He does speak through his written word, obviously. We know that we have all of God's, everything we need for life and godliness is here in this book. God speaks through his word. Open it. I love in the book of Nehemiah. If you remember, this great revival breaks out in Nehemiah once they discover the word of God again. It says, the people cried out, open up the book. It's almost like they got sick of lack of hearing from God. Like there's many churches, and it's not the shame churches, but it's like, open this book up. Just open it up. I feel like the people should cry out, like, open the book. We don't care about your opinions. Open the book, right? 
There should be something about that. Like, open up the book. That's what the people are yelling out in the book of Nehemiah. Open the book. We're sick of your thoughts, your opinions, your ideas. What does God say? Open the book. Listen, open the book. If you want to hear from God, open the book. He still speaks. Uh, Three is pretty simple, too. He speaks through people. You better believe that God will use people in your life to speak into you, to speak over you, to speak life into you, to challenge you, to call you out. God will use people to speak. Listen. Hold it to the word of God. Challenge it, but don't fight it. If it's not disagreeing with scripture, give into it. God will speak to us through people all the time. He speaks through creation. We're told this in Romans 1 and Psalm 19, but there's something about getting outside and going, wow, God, look how beautiful we are. And God's like, yes, my invisible attributes are being clearly seen. You see how good I am. And God speaks to us through creation. And then lastly, we're told that he speaks obviously through his son, Jesus. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to us through the prophets of old, but in these last days has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. He speaks to us through Jesus. My thing is this, open this book. Jesus said it this way in John 5, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. He who hears my words and believes them, you have eternal life. Open this book, hear the words of Jesus, believe the words of Jesus, you have eternal life. In John 6, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirits and they are life. Open this book up. God will speak. Have the heart of Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant. I'm listening. What is it you want to say? These words are spirits. They're not man-made. This is the word of God, the breath of God, the theonoustos, the, the breath, God breath. It's the God breath to us. God's speaking over us. Open this book up. You know, I, I love this thought. One of my friends said to me one time about something they knew. They said, man, that guy knows the word of God better than anyone I know. When you cut him, he bleeds scripture. And I loved that thought. That just stuck with me. When you cut him, he bleeds scripture because it's just so internalized. Like your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's just get it within. This is so key. Listen, if you are here today and you feel like I'm not hearing from God, I would say life is loud. So find a quiet place. Our phones are loud Social media is loud. The news is loud and obnoxious. Everything is loud and fighting for your time. So put it away, get alone, and say, speak, Lord. This is a lost art today. I think this is a thing that very, we see very rarely. I think people have very little life in their walk with God or very little joy because they're not going to wait and say, speak, I'm listening. I love when Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life. My word brings joy, he says in John 15. His word brings joy. There's something about the word of God. Open it up, read it, spend time in it, enjoy it. Yes, amen. We read this two weeks ago, but I have to read it again. 2 Timothy 2.9, Paul said, I suffer as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. That is like my favorite. You can chain me, but you can never chain this book. Again, you can tear this book apart, feed us to lions. You can just spear us through, doesn't matter. This will never be chained. So open it up, read it. God wants to speak. He will speak. I so wholeheartedly believe this. Again, verse 21. I made it really clear. It says, verse 21, the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God reveals himself through his word. That's just what he does. So here's the idea. God says, Samuel, here's my word. And then chapter four, verse one, the word finally came to Israel. Because you know why? Samuel, we'll see, was a conduit of God's word. God's word came to him and then it went to the people. Be a conduit of God's word. The word of the Lord is rare but he found someone. Goes to him, goes to the people. Listen, God will speak to you. God will use you to speak to others in his name. Yes. Amen. Here's my thing. I want us to be people of the word. I want us to not be like the sons of Eli, who never hear, who never enjoy, who are just just dead in their sin. I want us to be like a son of Hannah. The son of Hannah 
had ears to hear. The son of Hannah said, Lord, speak to me. Listen, how we need more praying moms, praying over their children, like Hannah, whose son ended up hearing the word of God and being used by God. I pray that God raises up more moms like that to pray over their children to hear from God. Amen? Yes? Hey, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just slow down, worship, and why don't we just take on a heart posture of God as we worship, speak. We're listening. We're going to worship, but we're going to ask for ears to hear that God would speak to us. So let's, let's pray, and let's end our time and just worship. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your word and that you spoke it in a time that was needed. How it, what we see here is a lack of your word meant just judgment. Lord, we just don't want a lack of your word. We want you. We want your word. God, I thank you that you spoke then and you still speak today. Thank you, God, that we're not alone. Thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us church community. God, you've given us your son, Jesus. We just say thank you. Lord, we ask that the word of God would just do something in my life, in our lives, that it transform us, that Jesus, this would be a generation that would hide your word in their heart. God, maybe we've missed it for a while. Let us not miss it any longer. Open our, our eyes to who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the greater than Samuel, that you are the greater prophet and the greater priest, the one that the weak, the, there was weakness in the priesthood, but not in you, Jesus. We just say thank you because you are the word made flesh. You are the word, and we look to you, and we praise you now in your name. Amen. Guys, why don't you stand up, and let's just close out our time in worship.